Hello, and welcome to Built In, the FMI podcast for the built environment. I'm Scott Winstead, president of FMI Consulting. I'm really excited about today's topic and even more excited about our guest. I'll be talking with Hugh Rice about FMI's groundbreaking research on why contractors fail. This timeless research, which was originally conducted in 2007, is among our most requested and downloaded pieces of thought leadership in our history. He was the former CEO and chairman of the board for FMI and is also the founder of our investment banking business. Over his nearly 48-year career, Hugh served as lead banker on countless M&A transactions, as a director on a number of construction firm boards, and as a mentor to so many inside and outside of the firm. Hugh, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much for joining me, and, uh, and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, why don't we go ahead and jump right in. For those that are unfamiliar with the research, would love to hear your take on the origin story behind the study. So what, what drove us to want to do this research back when it came out? Yes, actually, it's got an interesting beginning. We were doing a lot of research and a lot of thinking about consolidation in the industry and had been doing that for 15 or 20 years in terms of, in terms of the acquisition activity in particular. And it was the industry going toward fewer, larger companies? And so we sort of did some work with the ENR 400, went back to the 1960s, actually, and trying to see what percentage of the marketplace was controlled by the ENR 400 compared to year over year. And in the process of that, we discovered that the companies on the ENR 400, they changed dramatically over that 30 or 40 year period from the 60s forward. And we said, well, gee whiz, what's going on here? And so that's what really started the, the question about What's happened to all those companies, all those big, successful companies that don't exist anymore? And there are names that the current audience may not remember a lot of them, but the Jay Joneses of the world and the Atkinsons and the Morrison Knutsons and Sonny Webster's and Dillingham's and the Austin Company. And you go down the list and there were these billion dollar, multi-billion dollar companies that just didn't exist. And so the question was, what happened? And then I had had some personal experience with some of those companies sort of getting involved with them when they got in difficulty and got to see from the inside some things that had happened. And that also sort of triggered my personal interest. Then we started having discussions with sureties who had big losses. And they had some big ones in the 80s and 90s. And we said, gee, was what happened here? And they had done their own studies. And it, that sort of triggered our, our thought about why don't we do something? And then we got CERT, Construction Industry Roundtable, interested in this, and they provided their support. So we had access to 100 of the largest construction engineering firms in the country, and and our first presentation of this study was to them. So that's really how it all got started, and and sort of the rest is history, I guess. I really appreciate that background and that context. Maybe just start with a high-level, surface level. What were some of the reasons that you heard throughout that kind of initial phase of research? Well, a lot of what we heard was the same stuff that had been on every list that had been put together over the last 30 or 40 years of, of why companies fail. And every surety company had a list and they were the normal things like excessive growth, moving into new markets, taking on different types of construction, poor project selection, inadequate capital. You know, sometimes people say, well, the company ran out of money. Well, uh, duh, you know, obviously. The question, of course, is why. Some of the other things that were cited were Lack of business acumen. People in the construction industry are engineering oriented, not business oriented. Leadership and succession issues, project losses, productivity issues, owner failures was a, was one that got talked about a lot. And then the sort of the uncontrollable things like economic downturns and banking and surety issues. So it was the sort of the same list you always heard. 
But our question was, well, what caused those things to happen? Those are, yes, those are the those are the results that led to ultimate failure. But what was really the things behind that? And that's where our, our research came in. And we started trying to build a model that included those results. But what was behind them? A root cause analysis would suggest, you know, if you ask why five times, you'll finally get to the real reason behind the reasons. And so would love your take on what were some of the causes behind the causes that you all uncovered through your research. There are really five things that are at the core of what caused these failures. The thing at the top is for strategic leadership. The thing we heard over and over and over again, and even from people who were running companies that ended up in these difficulties, is that the guys at the top made some bad decisions. So why did that happen? And one of the things that we heard a lot about was excessive ego, that people who run these companies are very confident. That's the good news. The bad news is overconfidence sometimes makes people sort of become numb to the risk and think they can do anything. And I can name that tune in six notes and, and take undue risk. So that poor strategic leadership then making some bad decisions led to three things that really were the core things that drove these companies into difficulty. One is too much change happening too quickly. In 90% of the cases that we studied, the primary causes of company failure was trying to do too many things too quickly. You know, anything new, we think, talk about, well, not just moving into new markets or not just taking on new kinds of work or not just having new owners. It's hiring new people. It's putting in new systems. It's it's change within the business. And, and it turns out that, that too much of that causes the company to sort of self-destruct. People get overwhelmed and you lose your discipline and you don't really manage business as usual. So that was that was a big one. The second one was a loss of discipline. Every one of these big companies got where they were by doing things very, very well over and over again. I refer to the Peter Kiewit model all the time, and they're one of those companies that obviously succeeded through all this. And at Peter Kiewit and all these other companies, you did the same thing the same way every day, everywhere, on every project, all the time. And that is what these companies lost. They somehow lost their way and lost control of that became big bureaucracies run by people that didn't know what they were doing in some cases. And that's the other thing that sort of triggered some of these bad decisions. And finally, is inadequate capitalization. The question in this industry is how much money do you need to keep in the company to to make sure it succeeds? And my question back is, well, how much money can you lose on a single construction project? And the answer is all you got. Um, (laughs) If it's bad enough, It'll put you out of business. So keeping adequate reserves, making sure that there wasn't other claims on capital that caused companies not to be able to survive the ultimate negative thing that happens to construction companies. So those five areas are the basic underlying core things. And if you sort of go through any failure, you'll find that one or more of those, usually two or three of them, exist in any company that has gotten into financial difficulty. And a lot of these companies that got into financial difficulty didn't disappear. They got bought. They got restructured. Some of them disappeared, but but a lot of them still exist. They just exist under different ownership or different structure. So that's kind of was the bottom line of all of this. And the study that we've referred to goes into excruciating detail on all these things about how we got to those points. But But that's the essence of it. And what's amazing about this to me is 15 years later, it all sort of still rings true. There's so much to unpack there. I'd love to talk about the the mind of the contractor, you know, as a jumping off point and reminded of a 
a quote from a from Josh Wolf, who's founder of Lux Capital, who talks about failure comes from a failure to anticipate failure. So if you think about what you shared along the lines of the numbness to risk, you know, we've pulled so many things out of the fire as an organization. We can handle this risk. We can do this too. And so that the string of successes can ultimately lead to your downfall if you're not careful and not vigilant. So as you think about that, was there anything else that you found interesting around the, the mind of the contractor or the ego or decision-making? Numbness to risk is an important one. And, and obviously the industry is risky just by its very nature. We're doing a brand new project every time a new one comes out. The learning curve is very low. We're sort of starting from trash just by the nature of the industry. And so there's, there's inherent risk in it. And if you do that over and over again and you grow up in it, then you get used to it and you think it doesn't exist. And people do make bad decisions by just saying, I can I can do anything. You know, we can build that job. We're, we're Superman. There's a drive to grow. You know, I often said that I wish that ENR would publish a list of the 100 most profitable contractors in the country instead of the 100 largest contractors because there's this volume thing. And we had that old saw back in the old days about volume uh, kills and profit thrills. And it's really about the bottom line, not the top line. But people's egos are stroked by getting moving up on the ENR list. And so that's that's kind of an inherent thing. And sometimes companies outgrow their resources. There's a hyper-optimism. If you're not optimistic, you're never going to get a job. You know, you can't be overly conservative because your estimate will be too high. You'll never get a chance to do the job. So being optimistic is a positive thing, but being over-optimistic gets people into trouble. Being afraid of layoffs, you know, it's like every organization goes through great pains to hire, retain, train, develop people. And the last thing they want to do is have to reduce their forces and get rid of people they've spent 10 or 15 years training. And you say, well, gee whiz, that's, but if the if the market is not there or your business you know, is reduced, what do you do? If you don't get rid of people and the overhead gets bloated, then companies get into trouble. They don't make any money. They have a bad job and they, then, they're, then they're in trouble. So it's, it's, a, it's a perverse sort of thing. The good news is you develop a big organization that has a lot of good people. The bad news is you don't want to get rid of any of them under any circumstances. We call this thing the being a project manager versus being a CEO. Just because you're great at running projects doesn't mean you're good at managing a business necessarily. But your super project manager ends up getting promoted. And ultimately, it's somebody who's really, really good at running work who ends up running these companies. And it's not a project. It's not about the project. It's about the business. And a lot of people never make that transition. And we'll talk some more about how things are different today. And I think this is one of them, is it's really a business first and a collection of projects second. And that thing, if you don't understand that, you can get into a lot of trouble. It's also a feast or famine sort of mentality in this industry. We got people, we got to keep them busy. We got to get work. We get a bunch of work. And then we, you know, have to work off that backlog. And if we get a bad job, we can spend a year or two or three not making any money on that project, just trying to get it finished, putting our best people on the on that project. It's a fascinating sort of phenomenon. But if you really think about all the people that you and I have known who run construction companies, all those characteristics can be very positive things, done well and done right, but carried to an excess. It's what gets people into trouble. A mentor of mine said one time, if you look at the best performing businesses in this industry, they have a philosophy of we are a going concern. We are going to be here you know, next week, next year, two years from now, and we're going to run the business and invest accordingly versus it is a collection of projects that add up to a P&L. 
that philosophy has sort of rung true for me as I look at companies out there and that you can kind of tell those that have that long view in mind, but they also are very vigilant around systems and process to your point earlier about Kiwit. And so I think that's, that's an important piece. And something else you said struck a chord with me about just poor strategic leadership. We see lots of firms in the industry that have strategic plans that really don't have a strategy. They're not the same thing, and often they get conflated. Having a strategic plan is not the same. Filtering is a big superpower as it comes to strategy. So choosing what to do and, more importantly, what not to do is a key thing to keep in mind. You can put big documents together and have all sorts of things so they become operational improvement projects instead of developing a strategy. You ought to be able to articulate your strategy in about five or six sentences. And very few companies can do that. And once you get below the top person, probably nobody can do it. Right. You know, it's a great point. If you kind of scratch through some of the the language and some of the some of the volume in some of these plans, you know, what it really says is, you know, we're going to keep doing what we've been doing. We're just going to do it better and better. The original research and study was was done in 2007, I believe, and it was refreshed in 2016 or thereabouts. But prior to the original study coming out in 07, as you said earlier, there had been a number of large firm failures over the previous 30 years that provided fodder and content for the study. What's been different for the last 15 years or so? Well, what's amazing to me is that the, the quantity of significant failures has gone down dramatically, even from the sort of the update five or six years ago, there was a few, but not that many. And the way we really measure this is by surety industry results. And the surety industry results in the last 15 years have been very, very good. They haven't had those big, huge losses that wipe out all their profits from all the other good contractors they're they're underwriting for. So I think there's several things that that lead to that. Number one, the companies over the last 15 years have been much better financed than companies in the prior period were. But a couple of things lead to that. One is there was a period from mid 1990s to the mid 2000s. We had a hell of a run. We had the dot-com bust, which was really concentrated in one little part of the world. But generally speaking, the construction industry did incredibly well from the mid 90s to the mid 2000s. And so people built up reserves. Then we had the recession, which Everybody thought the world was going to end, and a lot of people's volumes went down, but they had the resources to survive that. There were not a lot of big losses in the, the Great Recession, oddly enough. Then there was another period of, from 2012 or so to 2020 of success where more capital was built up. It was good markets. Everybody made money, and more reserves were built up. The other thing, which I think goes unmentioned, is that during the 80s and 90s in particular, and continued into the the last 20 years is the large international firms came into our market in a significant way, made a lot of acquisitions. Those international firms inevitably had huge balance sheets compared to what we were experiencing in this country. There were companies with $20 billion balance sheets instead of the $20 million balance sheets. And so what we found is international players who bought companies here, some of those companies in the U.S. didn't do so well from time to time. And they probably would have failed, but they had big deep pockets partners who funded them and kept them alive. And I could I could name some of those, but I won't. But there was a number of them. So that really kept some of these companies from failing. So better financial backing. The other thing, which I would say to you, has been a discernible improvement, observable improvement in the quality of management and leadership in the construction industry. It's just better managed. You've got smarter people, better trained people, more strategic people running these companies than we did 
in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And that's, I think, led to some of that. Certainly more strategic and, and better financial orientation, relying more on the financial function than companies ever did in the past. You know, bookkeepers were sort of looked down on, but now the CFO has a seat at the table, and that, I think, has made a big difference in how the businesses get run. The other thing that I think has happened during that period of time is the bonding industry and the banks have done a much better job of risk analysis. They're not extending credit to people that don't deserve it. They're being much more disciplined about who they're taking on and how they're managing those risks. And I think that's helped. The other thing, which I think is a huge change, is risk reduction via contracting methodologies. Hard bid is not nearly as prevalent as it ever as it was in, in those earlier years. Design build, progressive design build, GCCM, IPD, P3 in many cases, where there's a pre-qualification process. Everybody can't just come in and throw a number at it. And you've got more cooperation between the owners and, and the contractors than you ever did before. The other thing that also fits in that pre-qualification area is subcontractor default insurance, invented by Zurich probably in the early 2000s. We called it SubGuard, but SDI is now very prevalent. And that product caused the construction community to do a much better job of pre-qualifying their subcontractors. So subcontractor losses are not as much of an issue. So a lot of things have changed. And, and I think for the better, and you take those and probably a half a dozen other issues have led to much fewer major losses. There's still losses that occur, but not like they were in that previous 20 or 30 years. All really great points. And I would certainly agree with what you shared about the quality of management and leadership over the last 15 years or so. I, I equate it to the overall professionalization of the industry as we continue to march forward. You know, kind of asking the flip side of that same question, what hasn't changed over the last 15 years in your view? That's a harder question. I can think of a few things. One is the nature of the industry hasn't changed that much. It's still cyclical. It's still risky. There's still labor issues, material shortages. There's still no real learning curve that causes the industry to become more productive. It's still kind of the same industry, except for the contracting methods, maybe. I think one other thing that hasn't really changed and hasn't improved very much is succession planning. You can have a great leader, but if you don't replace that great leader with another great leader, then you know, bad things happen. There's not a good, well-thought-out process in a lot of companies for who's going to be the next leader of this company. We push that in our practice with our clients, but just in general, I think it's something that the industry could do a lot better. We still have general economic condition issues, interest rates go up, the economy goes up and down. COVID was a big surprise. It's interesting, though. I had a well-known company that you've probably done some business with. The guy called me at the beginning of COVID, and he said, he said, I'm a buyer. He said, there's going to be all kinds of companies get in difficulty over this COVID thing. And I think I can make some really good deals and call me if you see anybody that needs help. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And a year later, I didn't have anybody to call him about. There were not obvious failures because of COVID like everybody thought there were going to be. There were a lot of companies that got these PPP loans that probably didn't end up using them because they didn't need them at the time. Some companies I know gave their money back. So the, the big hits to the construction industry because of COVID didn't happen because companies were well-prepared, as it were. And then the other thing we've already mentioned, which I think has not changed a lot, although we talk about companies being more strategic and better managed, strategic planning and the development of a strategy and the focus that comes from that is a never-ending process that has to get better. 
I think companies that get into trouble today are the ones that didn't do a good job of that. It's the old saying, things that have never happened before happen all the time. And, and it just speaks to building a good business that gives you lots and lots of options and the ability to be resilient when stuff does go bump in the night or create issues that maybe were unforeseen. Well, there's a, there's a great book that, that I read, and you probably have too, called The Black Swan. Absolutely. It came out a few years ago, which was fascinating. You can't plan for the unknown. You have to prepare for the unknown, but you can't know the unknown. And it's always those things that get you. I would argue that's one of the main arguments for having more money than you think you really need, just in case. There's always something coming that you didn't see coming. The power of a balance sheet. No no question. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, maybe to kind of summarize to a degree, if I could put you on the spot and ask you to put yourself in the risk position of a contracting firm CEO or leadership team, how would you summarize the most critical takeaways from the research? I think a few things. Construction is a risky business compared to other businesses, but it's how you manage that risk, how you anticipate it and how you prepare for it. And some people do that better than others. My other biggest takeaway is my way of saying what you just said a moment ago is never make a bet you can't cover, is that if you're going to bet something, if you're going to take a risk, make sure that you can survive if it doesn't work. Sometimes people ask me what the purpose of a business is, and my answer is, survive to fight another day. Because if you don't survive, then you can't meet your purpose, whatever that is. You got to be here to to meet your objectives and, and achieve your goals. Another one is focus. The term general contractor is should be changed somehow or the other. General contractor meant I can build anything, anywhere, anytime for anybody. I'm a general contractor. Well, today you're a hospital contractor or you're a data center a contractor are having focus, having specialization and building relationships in those industries is really, really critical. If you look at the companies that have been successful, they're not often installed people. On the other hand, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. I know companies that have done that and when they stop funding what you build, then you're toast. So you've got to diversify, but in a limited way, cover your basis, make sure you're not putting all your eggs in one basket but then focus on two or three or four baskets, just like you focus on one. So it's focus with diversity, which I think is really important. And the other obvious one is it's a people business. It's about the people all the time. It's about hiring. It's about training. It's about retaining and all the obvious things that that we all think about. But some people do that much better than others, certainly. And finally, I'd say discipline. And that's a big word. And I've got clients that don't like that word because that says bureaucracy to them. And there's a difference between being disciplined and being having good systems and good processes versus being a, a bureaucratic kind of organization that can't respond and meet the needs of the marketplace. So figuring out the difference between those two things and having discipline without turning the place into a monolith is an art rather than a science. So those are the kind of things that I think about when I Think about how do we take the business, the industry forward and and what things we should have learned over the last few years. So helpful. You know, your comment about never making a bet you can't cover. I'm I'm reminded, I think it was Charlie Munger who talked about inversion and and the power of avoiding stupidity. He says, you know, all all I want to know is where I'm going to die. So I never go there. So just don't make the obvious bad decisions and you'll be okay. Maybe just to shift gears, would love to take a follow-up to the question earlier about the last 15 years prior to the study and the 15 years post-study. Would love to get your take on where do you see things heading over the next 10 years? 
If I knew that, I'd be making a lot of money in the stock market. <laughs> I don't know that I have anything unique about that. I, the things that I think about and the things that I, I hear people talk about all the time are a pretty short list. I think labor struggles are going to be a bigger and bigger and bigger issue in this industry for all the reasons we all know about. Reduction in immigration, people leaving the industry, people retiring with technical skills. Where's the labor going to come from? And where's the supervision going to come from to do the work that has to be done in the field that there's almost no way getting around? The flip side of that is because of that, I think prefab, modularization, bringing manufacturing to the construction industry. We have to figure out how to do that. I think we will. I think there are some companies in other parts of the world that have done it better than we have. There's been an awful lot of activity, as you know, about money being spent trying to do that in the U.S. industry. And to date, there's not been a lot of success, but I think it will come. It has to. I think technology applications to the construction industry, I hope that would happen during my career, but I think I'm going to be dead before it actually happens. Uh, but if somebody can figure out how to really apply technology to this industry in a significant way that drives productivity, it'll be a game changer. And that's maybe not 10 years in the future, but I think it'll come. And finally, the other thing that has happened over the last 20 years or 15 years that is going to continue to have a big impact on this industry is the expansion of what we call mega projects, half a billion, billion, two billion, three billion dollar projects. And how do we manage those? We seem to struggle. The industry is rife with those big jobs that have not gone well. There have been some people that have done better than others, but I don't think that the industry has really has really figured out the key to that in terms of how do you build the capabilities, how do you organize a project, how do you execute a project that's a multi-billion dollar project and have it come out anywhere close to the way it was supposed to and that's not just a construction industry problem. That's an industry problem in general in terms of major projects in whatever field it might be. Uh, cost overruns are endemic. There's been a lot of interesting research done about that, but I think that's something that, that has to be solved. And I think, like everything else, somebody will figure it out. So those are the, those are the big ones from me. Well, just to play on what you shared earlier about, oftentimes we will see somebody that's strong operationally, project manager, superintendent, that grows up through an organization and ultimately does so well at that, they become CEO. Project managers for $2 billion projects don't grow on trees. That's a different animal. That's a different thing entirely from running other types of projects. It is really running an enterprise at scale with a time certain end date, you know, with all kinds of stakeholders and high stakes pokers. More and more of the dollars spent in this industry are big, big jobs. You're not breaking those jobs up into little pieces. They're tending to get aggregated instead of the other way around. Absolutely. Well, maybe just to, to kind of come to a close here, Hugh, would, would love to get your take on what do you wish you knew at the beginning of your career that you know now? If you could go back in time, what would you tell your, your 25 or 28-year-old self when you came to work at FMI? What I wish I had spent more time thinking about is I could afford to have a private jet so I could fly around the country <laughs> more comfortably and more efficiently and uh, save the wear and tear on myself. I don't think there's an answer to that question. But the other thing that I wish I had understood, and I think I did learn, it took me 10 or 15 years, is that it's the required, the industry needs to have an integration of all aspects of strategy and management. We tend to break up management in little pieces and say, well, you know, we're going to do a great job of productivity. We're going to do a great job of marketing. We're going to do a great job of succession planning. And we have silver bullets that we're, that we're shooting and trying to 
you say, well, I've got a silver bullet. I got a school solution. Here's what here's going to solve all your problems. And the reality is that none of those things are going to solve all the problems. There's got to be an integration of all those things. The other thing I would say that I wish I had known, and I did learn this eventually, is that every culture and every company is unique. And there are lots of ways to be successful in this industry. There's no one way to build a successful business. And you and I have both seen companies that operate dramatically differently in terms of every aspect you can think of. And just because it's in the textbook doesn't mean that's the only way to do it. I'll mention a company who I was on the board of for 20 years who started in 1990 and now is going to do 10 or $11 billion. And they have been wildly successful. But if you really get inside the company and watch how it works, it's exactly the opposite of what you would learn in business school. They do everything a little bit different, but wow, it works. And so I'm humbled by the fact that there's not just a way of being successful. And I think it's a mistake to sort of say, well, this guy did it this way, so I'll do it this way in my company. There's some general business principles, of course, but there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. And you could save yourself a lot of pain and anguish, or I could have saved myself a lot of pain and anguish by not trying to sell somebody to do something a certain way when their way worked just as well. That's a great point and a great observation. And Hugh, listen, again, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. It was a great conversation. I always really appreciate the time we get to spend together. So thank you. My pleasure. And I'm, I'm honored and uh, appreciative that you invited me to do this. And uh, it was great fun. Please remember to like or subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss another episode. 